Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we dive into this episode, I'd like to thank all of you who joined us live at our first Dr. GPCR virtual cafe held on March 26th. Our next virtual cafe will be on April 29th at 11 a.m. EST. Our guest is Dr. Joanne Kamens, the executive director of AdGene. AdGene is dedicated to accelerating scientific discovery by enabling the easy, open sharing of high-quality controlled biomaterials, including those used in GPCR research. To reserve your free ticket, visit drgpcr.com virtual-cafe today. To present your work or your company's technology or to sponsor the Dr. GPCR Virtual Cafe edition, please fill out the form on the cafe's main page. The goal with the Virtual Cafe Talks is to bring you GPCR-focused live presentations every month. You'll be able to join us live and interact with the speakers and attendees. We hope you'll join us on April 29th. To stay on top of all your GPCR news, subscribe today to our monthly newsletter at drgpcr.com newsletter. Last but not least, find us on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. On our channel, you can watch the latest Dr. GPCR podcast episodes and even the Virtual Cafe Talks. Come check out Dr. Brian Airy's presentation about GPCRs that are involved in modulating flow-induced signaling pathways in vascular endothelial cells. And now, let's dive into our episode. Hello, everyone. This is Yamina from Dr. GPCR. So today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Chris Tate. He is a group leader at the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, UK. Hi, Chris. Hi. It's so nice to uh, meet you. E meet you. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome on the podcast. I'm very excited to talk to you today. I think I, you are one of the first structural biologists, biochemists we have on the podcast. And uh, I hope the audience will enjoy our chat. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, you and, uh, and your position? Yeah, okay. It's, it's interesting that you call me a, a structural biologist because... I would call myself, first and foremost, a membrane protein biochemist. So my background has always been in membrane protein biochemistry. In fact, I was, I was interested in biological membranes, uh, even when I was at high school. I mean, these were, okay, the model was entirely wrong there. You know, the fluid mosaic model hadn't actually crept down into the basic textbooks at that time. Um, but it was fascinating to think about how things got across membranes. It just was not clear at that time. And of course, you know, uh, there was no high resolution structure at all of membrane proteins at that time. Uh, so I was a high school, what, 1982 this was. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was finishing. So it's, this is old history. Um, so I started university in, in, in 82, 82 to 85. So yeah, it was, it was quite a long time ago. Um, and of course, we had then the new structures coming out, high resolution structures of membrane proteins for the first time. And it was astonishing, it was amazing times. And this is what I wanted to do with structural biology on membrane proteins, not, not particularly GPCRs, but membrane proteins. Um, and so I started off actually as a third year undergraduate project working on the calcium magnesium ATPA from red blood cells. And basically, I had a 10-week project um, in the lab, and my supervisor just handed me a JVC paper and said, do this, which was to purify this protein from red blood cells. 
And I only found out later that they hadn't the faintest hope that I was going to get this to work. They didn't think it's just something to give a, an undergraduate, keep them quiet, basically. But after five weeks, I had a totally pure protein, and it was fantastic. And it really um, got me excited in, in basic science and being in the lab. And that was the fun part. And so after that, I then went to, um, to Cambridge uh, to work with Peter Henderson, and he worked on bacterial sugar transporters. And at that time, these were some of the most expressed transporters around. I mean, these were 20 to 50% of the inner membrane protein in E. coli. However, uh, my one problem I've had in my career sometimes is choosing the right project. And this was a bad project. So I chose the one bacterial sugar transporter, the Ramnose transporter, which has never been overexpressed. So it was impossible to do structural. <laughs> so it was a, a bit of a problem. Um, however, you know, I, I, I did some interesting work on it, but then I got a fellowship uh, to carry on with, uh, with that. Um, but you know how serendipity just throws a spanner in the works? Yeah. And then, so Peter Henderson then decided to go up to Leeds. And I was left with this fellowship and wondering what to do, because uh, he didn't want me to work on sugar transporters, because Obviously, that's his project he's taking up to Leeds. And that's when I met Richard Henderson. Uh, no relation, but this was at the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge. So it's about two miles away from the biochemistry department. And that's when I started working on the serotonin transport. That was also a nightmare protein to work on. <laughs> uh, and the structure was only solved, I think it was about, this is by another group, I think 20. 23 years after I started the work. Wow. So I was a bit ahead of my time there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I learned a lot. And, you know, at that time, the major points were trying to get your protein expressed and stable. And of course, I had a, as you can do, you have to have a backup project. And the backup project was the simple bacterial transporter called EMRE, the multi-plug transporter. And this was also a nightmare protein, as it turned out. Um, but it did have the one advantage of being stable. And so I then went on to um, work with 2D crystallography. For those people who don't know, because this was something which was around in the 1990s, the only way that was thought at the time was to be able to get structures of membrane proteins was to grow a, a, a two-dimensional crystal in the lipid bilayer of your protein of interest. So this worked really well for some proteins. So um, obviously bacterial adoxin was the best example. But then the next examples were um, things like light harvesting complex, um, aquaporins were very successful. And in fact, aquaporin zero is 1.8 angstrom resolution structure from Tom Bouts. Uh, really beautiful work. But unfortunately, most other proteins, they never got to high resolution. They normally got crystals which went to about seven, eight angstrom resolution, which was fine for looking at the architecture. Wow. Um, and yeah, so we, we, we did that, and that was very exciting. You know, um, and then after that, I eventually got into GPCRs. <laughs> and perhaps that's a story in itself about how I actually managed to get into GPCRs. Um, but the whole 
basis of my work has been how to work things out. How do membrane proteins work? So not just GPCRs at all. Um, Before we get into how you got into studying GPCRs, I'd like to go back to the beginning of the story. And you were mentioning that in high school, you were already interested in membrane proteins. Can you, Mm -hmm. how, how did that, how did that interest come up? I really don't know. I mean, I think it was just a fascination that you, there was, it's actually the Gavson Danielli model of membranes, which was basically the lipid was then sandwiched between protein, which is entirely wrong. And it was just the thought of, well, how does a cell live? You know, because things have to get into a cell and things have to get out of the cell, uh, all the toxins. And also, you have to be able to communicate with the cell. So the outside has to communicate with the inside. Because otherwise, the cell will just be like a, a house with no doors and windows. Agreed. It's, yeah. And that was really unknown at the time. So it was, yeah, we were completely in the dark. And so lots of exciting things need to be discovered. Um, how, how, were you all, did you always know that you were interested by science or how, how did that interest start? I think it's, you mentioned this and I tried to think about what I was into or what I was thinking about as a teenager, as a young adult, and it was miles away from, from membrane proteins. <laughs> I'm just trying to dig deep into, into yeah, where did that I start? Mean, it was, I just love science. In fact, it, it, I don't know whether it was the knowledge of science, but certainly it was the fun of doing science. And this is the, I think, the most important thing in my whole career. If I haven't had fun, then I haven't done it. You know, I just love being in the lab. As when I did uh, chemistry at um, at school, you know, it was the experiments that, that were the fun part. When I did biology, it was the dissections. It was learning what's going on inside. That was the fun part. And as soon as I got into university, so I did biochemistry and uh, I was at Bristol. And there you had to do other two other modules. So you had to do biochemistry. You had to do chemistry. Um, then I did microbiology, but they were all six hours of practicals every week. I think undergraduates now would just say, this is amazing. And, but this was the beauty at that time. It was hands-on training right from the first week, the first term of the first year in the university. Um, but I, I just love doing things. I like being outside. I liked, you know, bird watching. I liked nature. I liked everything about it and still do. But for me, science is in the lab, absolutely. And that's what really drove me to want to be a scientist. Um, I suppose there was one moment I remember going to a lab. It was actually the John Innes Institute in Norwich. And they had an open day. My parents took me when I was about 10 or 11. And I must have looked really bored because, you know, a couple of the scientists dragged me to one side and said, hey, look at this. And they gave me... A, uh, a tub of liquid nitrogen. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I was, so I was playing with liquid nitrogen, and I thought this was so cool. This is brilliant. Uh, <laughs> be a scientist is fun. Um, and even as an undergraduate, we had amazing lectures. We had amazing practicals. You know, as, a, as in the first year of undergraduate, we, were, we, were, um, we determined our blood group from our saliva. Wow. Right? Yeah, how do you do that? Well, it's easy because 80% of people are secreted. So they actually have the same blood group antigens on their saliva as they do on the red blood cells. So you set up a hemagglutination assay with antibodies that defined uh, whether they're A or B. 
with some controlled blood. And you just see if your uh, saliva inhibits agglutination. We purified cytochrome C. We did radioactives. Must be around agglutination. Wow. Right? I think that's 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 something that's probably missing. Um, I did my bachelor's in biochemistry as well. And yes, we were in the lab, but I felt that we didn't get enough practice. I think we were two or three hours in the lab, in the biochemistry lab. And then we had chemistry as well, but it wasn't, it was more theoretical, more sitting and listening to to lectures, yeah. which can be also interesting, but it's not the same thing as actually doing it. And then of course we had the societies, you know, there was a chemistry society. And I remember their Christmas lecture. So this was held in Christmas 1982. And I can still remember it vividly. It was entitled Explosions and Explosives. Oh, God. <laughs> and this guy was crazy. When we finished, the whole lecture theatre was full of smoke and bits of broken brick. And it was a blast. You know, it was like getting a long stick with some splints on the end and saying, look what happens if we soak these in liquid oxygen and then put them in a flame. You know, it was... <laughs> It was great, but this is this is the beauty of science. This is this is fun. It teaches you things, and it, it certainly makes you remember it. Absolutely, it's. Uh, I think that's that's the, that's definitely the beauty of it, of seeing it and witnessing yeah. it, which gets you know younger younger scientists interested in in pursuing it. Absolutely, that's yeah. fantastic. So let's 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 go back to the future a little bit. So you're you're trying to purify all of these proteins, and the way you were describing it, it you definitely loved what you were doing and you were hopping from protein to protein. Let's get to GPCRs. What interested you in GPCRs? Well, I think part of it um, was in the environment I was at the NMB. There was um, Gephardt Schertler, he was there, and also Reinhard Grishammer. So these were people who were, I was working alongside, um, but I was working on transporters at the time. So I was always immersed in that. Of course, we were all in a group with Richard Henderson, uh, who was also very interested, obviously, in membrane protein and bacterial toxin, but also in GPCRs in general. So there was the environment there. And um, of course, you know, I started the LMB in 1992. So to get a structure of a GPCR at that time was just a bit pie in the sky. Um, but Gebhardt, when he joined the lab in 1989, that's what he was doing. Right? So it was a lot of long-term effort went into the background. And I think the, the change came to me was when I had the problems with the serotonin transporter. So the serotonin transporter, you know, it's 630 amino acids, 12 transmembrane helices, two N-glycosylation sites. It's a bit of a beast, and it also requires cholesterol for function. Um, if you remove cholesterol, that's it, it's dead, full stop. It requires the glycosylation properly, so the expression is a nightmare. Um, but we got to the stage where we were purifying, you know, a few mix uh, at a time, so, so that's no problem. EMRE was difficult to express, but it was very, very stable. The problem with the serotonin transporter, it was unbelievably unstable. So even in dodecylmaltoside, it just, just died. So there's the question that arose in my mind. So this was around about 2000, 2001. Was, you know, if a serotonin transporter was as stable as EMRE, life would be so easy. It would be much, much easier. 
you know, it was just, yeah, wonderful. So that was when uh, the library came in because every week I used to go to the library, Friday afternoons, I used to go to the library and spend the whole afternoon sitting in a nice sunny library, just perusing the, um, uh, the journals. Of course, there was no internet really, there was nothing online. Yeah. And so you just used to go down, you'd read JBC, you'd look through all the major journals, you know, nature, cells, science, all those. And I came across a paper by Jim Bowers. And this was his 1999 paper, where he showed that point mutations can improve the thermostability of, of membrane proteins. He was actually working on a diet of glycerol kinase. And he then had a subsequent paper where he showed that if you put those together, a few mutations, you could, they're often additive and you could improve thermostability. When I read this paper, it was just a light bulb moment. It was just, this is what I have to do. This is what will make everything better and will make everything work for structural biology. I mean, I wasn't put off by the fact that he, you know, the diacylglycerol kinase, the structure didn't come out of this work. You know, that's not the point. The point was thermostability. To me, this was the key thing. And, and ironically, if you if you go and read um, Hartman Nichols' lecture on uh, his, his Nobel Prize lecture for the uh, the structure that he did from um, the, the reaction center, photosynthetic reaction center, he states this in that time. So, you know, this whole thing about detergents and stability yep. has been in people's minds for so many years. And, you know, this was the way forward. It was, it was just clear as day to me. But then I thought, well, we need some resources to do this. This is going to be a lot of work. Um, and then how to make this move forward, how to make it, how to attract the system. And really, GPCRs, yes, they're fascinating, but they also provided a tractable system in which to be able to get funding um, and to take this forward. And so in the end, that's what drew me into GPCRs. Yes, they're fascinating, but we had an insoluble problem because by this time, you know, um, both Reinhardt and Gebhardt have been trying for over 10 years to crystallize these GPCRs. And Rhodopsin had now just come out. And what we know, well, what do we know about rhodopsin? It's rock solid, it's stable. So you can actually use short chain detergents to be able to get the crystal. And they was just, you couldn't even purify, you couldn't even put, you know, exchange the serotonin transporter into any of these detergents. It would just be dead before you blink. So how to make it more stable? So this was the start of this whole thing about uh, going into GPCRs to thermostabilize them. Um, and yeah, that was another story of getting the money because how do you get money for something that is totally unproven? And in actual fact, it was industry who came to the rescue on that because they tried to recruit me. And I said, well, I wasn't that keen, but I would like a collaboration. And in the end, to cut a long story short, they gave me money for a couple of postdocs. Um, and then Richard thought, well, this is a good idea, but actually I can double that money. I think I can get some more postdocs. So we got another two. So we had four all together. And then we had one, one person working on the beta receptor to thermostabilize it, one to the neurotensin receptor to thermostabilize it, and one to the adenosine A2A receptor. 
thermostabilizer. And then we had uh, Tony Wall, uh, who carried on working with the with the with the Beetle side. And this was one of those dream projects. I mean, I don't think ever in my life I will ever ever write an application and just produce so much more than what I wrote in the original application. You know, the application for the money, I said, I would thermostabilize a GPCR. In three years, we thermostabilized three GPCRs and we got the crystal structure of one. And that was in three years, starting from scratch. Wow. It was just, it worked so much better than we ever had a growth. And uh, it, was, it was just fantastic. It's nice to have at least one of those occasions in, in science. It is. It is. It is. And it's good. It's good that I love that you mentioned that, you know, you, you spend the Friday afternoons at the library reading about anything and everything that you could put your hands on, because that's the way I, I the way it came through. It seemed that that was your your me time doing something that I love. And um, that's that's when the better best ideas come from when when you just go in there with an open mind, looking at something and that that's that's the connection that that you made absolutely you know none of my best ideas have ever arisen from being in a lab never because when you're in the lab you're thinking about what's in front of you yeah. you're thinking about your work or if you're in the computer you're thinking about writing up something or answering emails or something like that you know it's, it's all the best ideas come from somewhere else they, they really do they do. They do. I usually uh, got my best ideas either in the shower or walking the dog because I wasn't thinking about it. And then I realized, oh, well, maybe we should try this or that. And it turned out to be a, to be a good or bad idea. But I think even negative results are good results because at least you know which way you do not want to go. Yeah, absolutely. But the library, you know, is, is that just reading things? And it was, I just loved it. I love being in the library. It's really sad that we don't do it anymore. You just sat in front of the computer screen. I, but uh, hey, that's progress for you. I know, I know. I think uh, all progress has advantages and disadvantages. When I was um, an undergraduate student on Friday afternoons, I used to go to the McGill University Library. So I did my undergrad at the University of Montreal and we were just starting to work in the lab. And some of the books that we needed for the lab work was were only available at McGill. Um, so Friday afternoons after classes, the direction was McGill because you could have access to all these protocols or these books um, on actually molecular biology. Yeah. And I, I do miss I do miss that, to be honest. But then again, uh, it's 2020. You can have all the papers you want at the, uh, at the tip of your fingers. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's always about reading the right papers. That is true. That is true. You know, and... I just remember sitting in the library and reading papers on uh, all the early work on prions and things like that. It's fascinating stuff about, you know, the conformation of dynamics of the prion proteins. And, and this is before Stanley Cruz got this Nobel Prize. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. Hearing about, you know, learning about Kuru and fatal familial insomnia and things like this. Uh, it's wonderful stuff. But you don't get that if, if you're not flicking through a book. You know, because normally, what do you do? You click on a link to a paper in a in somebody with somebody's reference, or yep. you know, you've got from elsewhere. It's, it's too focused. It is. It is. It is. And search engines will take you to similar papers, which will lead you down 
that that rabbit hole where it only suggests you what you initially were looking for. Absolutely. That is uh, that is true. So the other question I wanted to ask you is with with you know putting in point mutations and thermostabilizing receptors. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked online, obviously, and everybody must must know this. You are one of the co-founders of Heptaris. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to to being a co-founder? Yeah. Okay. So. Um, so what happened? So we started the actual lab work on thermostabilization in 2006. Um, so, is that right? No, 2005. Sorry, big pardon. So we started um, February 2005. And the idea was we changed every amino acid to alanine because alanine, we changed it to leucine. We then did an expression and we then did a thermostability assay based on the combined. And so from spring 2005, by summer 2006, it had worked so unbelievably well, we just couldn't believe it. Right? So we had no crystals, but what we did have was the beta receptor, which had been thermostabilized by 21 degrees. And you could put it in any detergent you like. Right? I mean, you could do measurements in octal Previously, if you put the receptor in octal glucoside, you wouldn't be able to measure anything. It was just done dead. Um, just, just as a, a parenthetical, you know, we went on to thermostabilize it uh, even more. Um, some work by, by Jenny Miller. And she actually ends up with a receptor that you can measure ligand binding in SDS. Now that's what I call stable. <laughs> yes, <laughs> in SDS. Wow. <laughs> Pretty good. Anyway, so when Richard and I, you know, invariably bumped into each other um, at the canteen or, or wherever in the corridor, you know, in around about summer 2006, it was really a case of, well, how do we capitalize on this? This is this is this is big. This is amazing. So of course, by then, all the structures that are out there have been relaxed. Um, so there was no other GPCRs at that time. So. We thought, well, what can we do? And, and you think there are three possibilities. Essentially, you can just carry on as, as you are, get a few more grants in, and, and just carry on. The second would be to set up something like an SGC type consortium. So, you know, you'd get some farmer involved, you'd find some other premises, you'd get in more people, but keep it on a semi academic type basis. And the third was to set up Biotech, a uh, small company. Um, and we were fairly agnostic about it. I mean, neither Richard or I really wanted to run a company. Um, I think we're a bit too academic for that. Um, I'm sure we could have done it, but it would have ended up a very different company. Um, but of course, what we did have was lots of contacts with, with industry. And again, this is where serendipity just, just pops in, you know, and, and how to be polite. So one of the people that we knew for many, many years was Malcolm Weir. So he was somebody who worked in GlaxoSmithKline uh, for many years. Um, and he fund, He was the person who we had uh, funding from. We had funding from GSK for, for many, many years. And he was a guy in the background who was really supportive. Um, and yeah, he was very enthusiastic about GPCLs, always was. He was the first person to ask Richard for coordinates for bacteria adopting, even before he had them. We asked in 1989, <laughs> one year before the structure came out. 
So at that time, they thought that maybe there were some similarities between bacteriolopsin and GPCRs. So they wanted to model them. So yeah, he was always enthusiastic about GPCRs. Anyway, he'd left and he, he would, um, he'd worked for a, a small biotech called Informatica. And that had just been taken over and he wrote to Richard and just said, well, you know, um, I'm not, no longer working there, I'm considering other positions. And then Richard looked at me and I looked at Richard and thought, now there's somebody who could run a small biotech. Somebody who is passionate about GPCRs and somebody who we get on with, somebody who we trust. And yeah, he'll be great. So he invited him down in September 2006. And he, he, uh, we spent an afternoon talking about all the data. And he thought about it for a couple of weeks. And then he said, okay, I'll do it. I'll, we'll set up a company. And uh, that's when the bump started because <laughs> you need money. And so we, <laughs> so we then went to, um, uh, various venture capitalists. So we started off with uh, MGM, which is down in London, and we went down there and started talking to them. Um, you know, venture capitalists are amazing people. They are so sharp, so sharp. I remember the second sentence that was uttered in our meeting. This is just as we walked through the door, made the introductions, and the second sentence was, what is your exit strategy? We haven't even talked about the project yet or <laughs> setting up the company. <laughs> What is your exit strategy? Because obviously they want to make money. Um, so, so that. So we talked with them, and then they said, "Okay, that sounds good." And then we thought it was all over. But then they do their due diligence. So then they invite their friends and colleagues in industry to assess us to see whether we're any good or not, and they actually believe what we're saying. And uh, so then they did that. We had meeting after meeting after meeting. We just gave them the same story. And I think we convinced them, particularly when in, um, so this was now 2007. So uh, January 2007, we had Stephen Matkey who put two dividends on us. And the last slide I showed up was our first attraction pattern of the beta receptor, which with spots out beyond the ring all the spots totally discreet. It was beautiful, just blew them away. I think that was the that was the item in the cake. And then in July 2007, that was when it was founded. Um, we had another co-founder who came in on board, who was Fiona Marshall. Fiona is an amazing woman. She's her knowledge of GPCR pharmacology is second to none. She and she has so much energy. And the two, you know, uh, so Malcolm became the CEO, Fiona became the CSO, set up all the labs, and ah, it, it was a lot of fun. Um, I went down there once a week and to, to troubleshoot. We had people in the LMB to um, the initial employees. We started off with four people. We taught them firm stabilization. They had a porter cabin down at um, MRC, uh, well, it's, um, no, Milkin. Uh, down in London, uh, where MRCT was based at that time. Uh, so yeah, it was literally one of those porter cabins, you know, you, you, temporary buildings. They were the labs, freezing in winter, hot in summer. Um, and then it grew. So then there was a, uh, a second round of funding 
So the first round was, I think it was just over a million. Then we got another million for another year. So that was two years. And then they got the Series B, um, which was done at the worst, worst possible time. 2008, time. right? 2009. Nine, yeah, well, right, <laughs> after, right after the whole economic... Um... Right after it, yeah. But we managed to get £21 million pounds out of that, so that was good. Um, and then it just kept on growing and growing. And so they moved from the porter cabins into um, space at Welling, and now they've just moved up to Cambridge after they got taken over by Sosa. Uh, so they know Sose Hectares, uh, employ about 120 odd people, they've got six uh, candidates in clinical trials. So it's been a fantastic journey, really exciting. That is that is so great. So let's go back to the beginning of the conversation about Heptaris. Did you have an exit strategy? <laughs> the exit strategy was it was always going to be a drug discovery company, right? This was, you know, this is what you want to do. You want to improve people's health at the end of the day, um, and the structural biology is an incredible window into drug discovery. You know, once you've got a structure in front of you in medicinal chemists look at it, they, they've got information you can actually build upon. Um, so the exit strategy, well, that we weren't too fast. I mean, you can either keep growing the company, um, which is normally what happens in the States, but in Europe, there's, there's, it's very difficult to take a small company uh, through a medium company through to a large company. There's just not the appetite for long-term investment. Of that sort. Um, so in the end, it was a buyout by Sosa, but that was perfect as well because they were a very small company. I think they had about thirty or forty people, so they were a sales company uh, at that time. So they were they were cash rich. They wanted to have a an R and D resource, um, and we fitted the bill. So they just bought us, and everything carried on as per normal. Um, and it's been fantastic. Everything's worked out as we had expected. Um, and they've solved, uh, I don't know, it's well over 250 structures of GPCRs from, I don't know, 15 plus different GPCRs. So each one, I mean, this is the point to, to actually, you know, develop a drug is different from getting a hit. It's different from getting just a binder. You know, if, if we want to tool a compound, which just inhibits a GPCR, what do you do? You screen a library, maybe virtually or what have you. You just pick the highest uh, affinity hit you get, 10 nanomolar, whatever. Thank you very much. Job done. But, it, you know, if you're doing drug discovery, it's got to be a lot more than that. You've, you've got to have it so that it gets to the place it wants, but it's not degraded. It doesn't hang around too long, but just long enough. Uh, it's not toxic to other things. There's no off-target effects. All these other considerations, and that is what takes the time. You know, to actually get your preclinical candidate is, a, is okay, it's difficult, it's hard work, but compared with the rest, you know, it's a fairly short time. It is. Getting it into the clinic and getting it approved and making sure that it does what it's supposed to do. Yeah. I mean, the, the major problem is that, you know, we don't understand the human body as well as we need to. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite complex, apparently. 
yeah, I, I think so. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> we, we wouldn't be here. Thank you so much for for running through through the Haptaris story. Um, what I, I should maybe have told you is that I spoke to Fiona earlier in in July this year in 2020, and actually I I have her version of the story, which well, is I, as I, I, we, <laughs> I hope we agree. <laughs> we, you do, you do, and it's it's just as fascinating. And um and you're right. I think she's she's just wonderful. And one part of the story that she was telling is that she really the most beautiful moments working at Heptaris or being part of Heptaris was when the structure was solved and you can actually look at it in, in 3D and then, you know, turn the lights off and then you just look at the, uh, you go into the structure. Yeah. And, and the amazing thing now is that, you know, there's been, I don't know, 70 years of medicinal chemistry on, on, on GPCRs, totally blind. And there's all these amazing compounds and now you see where they bind. And some of them bind nowhere near where they were supposed to. They're in completely different places. And it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I, I take my hat off to the medicinal chemists who did all this without structures. I mean, wow, that is a real tour de force. Um, but now to have the structure in front and see where they bind and how they bind, it, it is just fantastic. Yeah, I, I find it very fascinating, although I don't know much about structures. I'm not a structural person. I'm more a molecular pharmacologist. But I, the way I see it is having the structure, knowing where the molecule binds is step one in the process of understanding how that molecule affects the conformation of the receptor and ultimately how it affects the signaling and hopefully understand physiologically what it does. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, the fun thing about GPCRs now is that, you know, you can you can get all those states. You know, yes. obviously, whenever you do structure, the first structures you get are the easiest ones. And I still think people don't realize this, that actually we haven't got that many structures of GPCRs. Right? We've got the easy ones, but there's still a lot of them. I mean, everybody would probably go, no, they weren't easy. They, weren't. they are. They, they have been easy. Um, and so there's a lot more that needs, needed to be done. And also you're really reliant on the technology of the time. So, you know, even if we'd got crystals in 1990 with the GPCR, we wouldn't have been able to solve the structure because microfocus beam lines weren't around. Um, so the data collection couldn't have been done. Um, so, you know, things go hand in hand. Right? So there's been amazing um, improvements in synchrotron radiation, and they course got the extra uh, as well. So all of that has helped just the throughput of crystal structures. You know, if you want to have 40 crystal structures of the GPCR for drug discovery, of one GPCR with 40 different compounds, you know, that's a lot of work, right? But now it can be done. And the really exciting thing now is the similar changes which have been happening in cryo-EM. And the, 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 the transformation that is having on our science. You know, if you want a crystal structure, you spend ages engineering. I mean, you're, you're, you're cutting off the end terms, you're cutting off the C terms, you're perhaps engineering the intercellular loop three, putting in uh, Brill or T4 lysozyme or what, then you're putting in thermostabilizing mutations, then you have screen ligands. And, then you get some crystals, which refract to about, if you're lucky, eight or nine angstroms, and then you have to try. Yeah, it's an endless, tedious process. 
And now CryoEM comes along. And it is just a revolution. It has been amazing. And you know, now, you know, to be able to get, if you think back to 2011, when you know, Brian's beautiful structure came out with the G-protein couple, if we had to go through that every single time to get an active state receptor, it just would not happen. But now with CryoEM, suddenly it's become so, so tractable. And the number of structures which are coming out is, is just phenomenal. So now you have the possibility of getting, you know, for the beta receptor, now we've, we've obviously we started with the inactive state. We then had the inactive state with an agonist bound. Uh, we then had the uh, uh, an inactive state with, uh, sorry, an active state with nanobody bound. So we do that. And then obviously you can have a G protein coupled state to that. We've got the arresting state. So now, I cry OEM. So now you've got the whole set. You've got a whole window of, of different states that you're looking through. And you can have some idea about actually what's happening. But there's, the structure with arresting coupled just would not have happened without cry OEM. You no, know, it's simple as that. If you, if you need to have the analogist there to be able to get good binding of your, uh, your receptor. Uh, to the uh, to sorry the rest into the receptor. Um, you can't do that by crystal. So so this is this is the way forward. Um, and I think the other thing which is worth bearing in mind is the this revolution has only just started. We're just at the beginning, and the new um, technology which is coming through uh, is, is astonishing. I, I hope you've seen this week. You know, the atomic resolution structure by cryogen, um, you know, 1.22 angstroms, which is incredible. Um, you've got, so there's new technology from the microscopes, which has come through. There's also new technology. So last week we heard about the, the new um, hexapoil grids uh, from Chris Russo's lab. So these are just better. <laughs> So basically, they just stop movement of the sample when the beam hits it. So you get much better data right from the word go. And also, because of the design of them, you'll be able to collect about 10 times more data per image. So you'll be able to do so much more. Um, everything's getting better, it'll be getting faster. So there will be no excuse. You know, new structures of GPCRs won't be coming from crystallography. They're just coming straight from, from cryo-EM coupled to a, a, a G-protein. And then if you want to understand how, it, how it's activated, you've really got to go back and get the inactive state so that you can do the comparison. And I think it's going to be that way around. So the challenge is going to be how do you engineer your protein based on your active state structure to be able to quickly get an inactive state maybe to do crystallography, but actually maybe you don't even need to do that. I mean, you just raise an antibody um, and the EM technology will get to the stage where you'll just be doing inactive state structures of GPCRs by cryogen. That will happen. I think it's yeah. I think we need we needed to to wait for the technology to catch up with with our our ideas and our. It's our always needs. the way. 
<laughs> the, the one while you you were you were mentioning all of these advances in technology what i what came to my mind is you know simply the smartphone when you think about it how many things does it replace so it replaces a video camera it replaces a, you know a vhs um um device to watch videos it replaces the calculator i don't i have an app that actually allows me to have calculate have a scientific calculator on my phone i don't need to buy that calculator it re replaces so many things and we needed to wait to get to the point where you can jam all of those little components in one small device that you in a computer that you actually carry in your pocket that does so many you know, things maybe uh, maybe one day i ought to get a smartphone <laughs> so you're you're not a smartphone adopter i'm not clever enough for a smartphone <laughs> far smarter than i am it took me a while i think you're not the you're not the only guests on on the podcast who does not have a smartphone or if, if they do they barely you know keep it in the, in the drawer somewhere just because sometimes they might need it precisely so um You've worked on, on so many uh, so many GPCRs. Do you have any favorite structures? Is there a highlight uh, in in your career where you felt like, wow, this we worked? I mean, I think I feel like the the answer would be all of them because you worked so hard to get all of these. But is there one in particular that uh, more was more difficult or you know more fun to work on? You know, the, the trouble is that, as I say, when you go through, every single one is a highlight. Every structure you get, you just think, oh, this is fantastic. You know, when we saw the arresting structure, the high resolution, you know, 3.3 angstroms, then you've got all the data there. And then you see that there are differences in the orthospheric binding pocket, which we were not expecting at all. Even, yeah, I just wasn't expecting it. And so that's exciting. But so I suppose the... Um, the most exciting thing we have going at the moment is is the structure of a diamond. So this is it hasn't been published yet. It's been accepted in nature. Uh, so you're first you're the first to hear about, it, yes. about that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is um, a C2 from um, a family D GPCR, and you know I've got an amazing PhD student who came into the lab. Um, when was it? So two years ago now. Two years ago this October. And he's he's an incredibly talented, but also a wonderfully philanthropic guy. And I thought, you know, working on East GPCRs, which have the potential for, for um, you know, perhaps starting to raise, get drugs to some of the really difficult fungal diseases in, in humans. Um, maybe a way to go, I don't know, but you know, there are options there. So starting from scratch, he went from uh, you know, expressing it and making complexes. He, he expressed the receptor, he expressed the G proteins, he put them together, he got the structure, and it turned out to be a dimer. And this dimer interface is on helix one. You've got a domain swap 10 terminus, it involves helix seven as well. You know, it's 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 about you know twice the area of the G protein uh, um, interface of the receptor, and then you know it, it looks different as well. So helix four is the intracellular side of the twenty angstroms away from where it is in normal class A GPCR. Uh, the G protein coupling site is like a little shelf rather than a deep cleft. And, oh, it's wonderful. 
So that's my favourite and exciting structure at the moment, until the next one comes out. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting. I was having a conversation with a, with someone earlier this week, and we were talking about you know the podcast and the topics, and someone said, well, we want to hear more about dimers. So I'm glad that we're talking about it today. <laughs> Wow, that is so amazing. Oh, wow. I can't wait to uh, to see it. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it'll be coming out soon. But, you know, it's, it's yeah. The trouble is it normally takes about, you know, a few months now between uh, acceptance and, and actually getting them out of nature. But, yeah, it'll be, it'll be good fun when it comes out. Wow. What an accomplishment, especially for a PhD, uh, PhD student. Yeah, two years, <laughs> you know. Well, he actually had the structure. I saw the, the first structure just before Christmas, past Christmas. Wow. So a year and a bit. Which I mean, Still. He, he, is a, he is a phenomenal. He is really good. So if anybody wants a good PhD student, well, he'll be a postdoc <laughs> in a couple of years' time. He'll be one to go for. Wow. That's, that's so great. Speaking of, of PhDs and students, um, what would be your advice for, for you know, young scientists or early career scientists who want to contribute uh, to better understand membrane proteins and potentially GPCR uh, structures? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's really difficult because, you know, when I was a student, things were very different. <laughs> Times are so different, you know. But I think one thing is clear. You have to be passionate about it. You know, you have to enjoy science because... Science is brutal. It is absolutely brutal. Um, things don't work for months. You know, how do you get through that? You have to be robust. You have to have a skin like a rhino sometimes. Um, and what keeps me going is just being in the lab. You know, every experiment that doesn't work is more knowledge, which you can then use to try and make the experiment work. And it's an endless process of slightly refining things, of thinking and going back to the bench. And if you don't enjoy being in the lab, I mean really enjoy, as in I'd rather be there than anywhere else, then, yeah, it's, it will be tough. It will be really tough. So that's the first thing. That's, that's the main advice. You've got to enjoy it. And then everything else just comes along because... Um, yeah, it's just working hard at it. Yes, be in the right environment, be in a good lab if you can get there, um, but just work and enjoy it. Be passionate about it. If you're not passionate about science, then hey, maybe it's not for you. There's something. Else, there's so many things you can do with, outside of science if you're not passionate about it. Do you still spend time in the lab? Do experiments? <laughs> Since you've mentioned loving being in the lab, I, I know a lot of a lot of head of labs and group leaders who, after a while, get so entangled into the administration administrative work, and from yeah. from my own from my own experience, having you know my my PI say, well, where do we keep this or where do we keep that? A couple of years in, because they haven't had a chance to be in the lab. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's where I've got to as well. It's all the other things. Uh, yeah, I spend a lot of time in, sitting in front of a computer, uh, writing, refereeing grants, refereeing papers, writing papers, writing grants, 
and also for my sins, the, the biological safety officer for our buildings. So that takes up a lot of my time as well. But normally when I do get back to the lab, it's for things like um, if, if anything's gone wrong, if there's anything dangerous. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting how things have changed because, you know, we did a lot of radioactive work when I was younger. Um, and it teaches you how to work with things which are perhaps a little bit more hazardous than normal. As biological safety officer, you know, I have to learn how to fumigate labs. You know, you've got 400 parts per million um, uh, formaldehyde in you know, gases. It's oh, really God. dangerous. Um, and so if anything goes wrong, I'm normally in the yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, that doesn't happen too often now. Um, but, yeah. You know, going back to the times, the, you know, the first experiment that I was asked to do as a PhD student, and that was to redistill two liters of phenol. Because at that time, you were that there were no kits, right? So if you're doing molecular biology, you had to have uh, redistilled phenol doing your phenol chlorophyll extraction. Yep. And that was the dirty job that I had to do. I would never dream of asking anybody to do that now. Because... I wouldn't trust them to have the skill set to be able to do it and to have the confidence in how to do it and having two liters of boiling phenol. Oh, God. Even, even <laughs> mentioning it, I've done phenol chloroform extractions. That's how we were doing our mini preps back in the day. Yeah. But, you know, the phenol chloroform came already in a bottle, so you didn't have to, <laughs> <laughs> to do anything with it other than being very careful. But nowadays, things have evolved so much that you just get your kit and in under 30 minutes, you have your 24-minute preps and you're good to go. Absolutely. And, and this is a huge advance. It, it, it is wonderful that the pace of science is, is incredible. And yes, a PhD student can start and get a structure in, in a year and a bit. Right? And that's fantastic. Um, I, I sometimes think something's missing as well because the understanding very often is not there. You know? And just as a clue, folks, sometimes the questions I ask of, of uh, uh, people who want to join my lab, I'd ask them, how does a mini prep kit work? Tell me in chemical term, terms how a mini prep kit works. Uh, you'll be amazed at how few people know how that works. I just think that's sad because Science is about curiosity. Science is about just, well, how does it work? Aren't you interested in it? Or, or are you just using it, you know, as if you were in the kitchen making Sunday lunch? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Still, no, I, I, I can very much relate to that. Understanding how your kit works or understanding how a reaction works makes you so much better at troubleshooting if something goes wrong. And uh, yes, I've I've been in a position where before being able to measure cyclic AMP inhibition in a plate assay, I had to purify on col on two sets of columns the uh, the radioactive tritiated uh, cyclic AMP made, and then you know you had to wash it and uh, and then you put it in the in the counter and you got your numbers if you're lucky if the counter didn't uh, decide not to go through your vials overnight. And it's not, it's very, it's difficult work. It's challenging work. It's not as precise as having a plate-based type of experiment. But um, when you get that result, you get that dopamine rush on, on a totally different level than getting some plate 
spit out some some numbers there. <laughs> I, I didn't realize you were somebody from the old school as well. <laughs> well, not not that old. You mentioned 1982. I was two years old at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, I did I did um I did do, get to do radioactivity and then purifying cyclic MP and then IP one as well and then going for months and realizing well I had the wrong type of column. And, you know, and now people just do it in, in, in a 384 well played just by mixing some stuff with an electronic pipette, not even pipetting one well at a time. <laughs> so, but, you know, that's that's progress. I mean, that's fantastic. it is. It is. It is. You know, and that, that's the, what the questions you can ask now are, are just so much deeper. Yes. Um, and also the, the range of data you can get is so much greater. You know, it's not the case of just having one mutant or 10 mutants of a protein you just have 300 you just do a total scan see what every single amino acid does in the receptor how it works this is this is the way to understand things instead of having our own unconscious biases driving the questions you know you just ask these global things what does every amino acid do in a protein exactly yeah, and now you have the luxury of asking that question and actually getting an answer to it. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's 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 something that I really enjoy thinking about the advances, the technological advances that we've made in the field, and all of these these tools that we have today. Because, as you mentioned, you can ask the big question: so, what does it do? And you can get an answer as you with as your PhD student in a year and a half and get a beautiful dimer structure. Absolutely, yeah, it's wonderful. So. But I still think the you know the last big question you know is you know when you see the GPCR field all you see is this accelerating number of structures um, and information and that is just going to get faster and faster and I think but you know when you think about drug discovery that is now the minor part that is the and it's still coming back to that same question about the human body you know, there needs to be um, how to accelerate, if you like, those drug, those drug trials. How do you make sure that your drug does not fail at phase two or phase three when the majority of them still do? You know, and if we can get over that, if you can have in vitro systems to be able to leverage more information of how the body works so that can be accelerated, you know, that will have the biggest impact on drug discovery now, really. Yeah. Not yeah. my field, though. That's somebody else's field. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I agreed on that. And I think, um, you know, being able to get this information, to get the structural data, to get the pharmacological data, better understanding the human body, the system, the how cells work is very important. We're accumulating more and more data. And I think this is where computational biology and potentially machine learning come into play because there's just so much data that a human brain can't necessarily process all of those. And it, putting it together, in my mind, which will that's what will accelerate drug discovery. Having all these components, components put together. Super. So I know we talked about this. This is my last question. Actually, what, I have two more little questions for you. Um, and it might be a, a difficult one. Um, top three aha moments that you had as a scientist, not necessarily in the lab. Top three aha moments. Um, okay, the, the first printout of the um, 
and it was a printout in those days from a printer of the <laughs> 2D projection structure of EMRE, showing it was an asymmetric diamond. So that was a real, because everybody thought it was a, um, a trimer, a symmetrical trimer, and it turned out to be an asymmetric diamond. And that was amazing. That was just incredible because it, it led on to so many other things. Um, GPCR aha moment. I think, well, of course, the structure, seeing the first structure of the beta receptor was, was amazing. But even before then, just seeing the thermostabilization, that was an amazing, you know, just seeing these mutations come together, 21 degrees of thermostability, and it just was a game changer. And then I think the final aha moment, um, probably meeting my wife at the synchrotron. <laughs> <laughs> so she's a so scientist. There we go. <laughs> she's also a scientist? Yeah, she is. She was in structural biology as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I ask a, a semi personal question since she's a scientist. Do you talk science at home? Uh, yeah, we do. We do. Yes. I think we talk more about our four-year-old daughter than anything else. Though. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to keep her under control. <laughs> more to the point, doing experimental. That's far more fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, those are uh, those are whole body, whole human experiments, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's great. And then last question, um, if you have any job, job openings in your team, where can people find them? Where can people find you? Yeah, so, um, I mean, if people, you know, have fellowships and, and want to come, and I you know that's just right to me. I'm always on email. Uh, if I have jobs, I we uh, advertise them online in uh, Nature. Um, find a postdoc, apparently, is quite good these days. Uh, there's also the MRC websites um, and also jobs.ac.uk, all online, all searchable. Um, but yeah, perfect, perfect. I will put a link um, to on our website with this podcast episode to all of, all of these links, and obviously, people will have access to your LinkedIn link and uh, and your email. They can uh, they can reach out to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Chris. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I hope our audience did as well. We learned so much. Um, and until next time, I'll stay safe, and uh, I can't wait to see that nature paper come out. Well, thank you for the conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. I'd like to thank our guest as well as our team members, Attila Forrest, Shivani Sajdev, and Jin Chung. Don't forget to subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter at drgpcr.com newsletter. You can also leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast if you think we deserve it and share our podcast with your colleagues. Until next time, stay safe. Mm-hmm.